Welcome to the Recruiter Abroad podcast. My name's Dolta Daharde, and in this podcast series, I will be bringing you the stories behind expat recruiters who have emigrated around the world. So far in the series, we have discussed Gareth McGlynn's career as a professional footballer and what led him moving to Perth in Western Australia to become a recruiter and then further on moving to New York and then back to Ireland to set up his own recruitment business. I've discussed Dara Everard's journey, which also took him to Perth and then back to Dublin and how that accelerated his career. Last week, I spoke to Alex Zobelli, who is an Italian recruiter who moved first to London and then on to Tokyo. We've been great, getting great feedback on the podcast so far, and we appreciate every last one of you who have been uh, reaching out to us on LinkedIn. Please, if you enjoy it, do send it to a friend and give it a little like and share on LinkedIn. And if you want to come on the podcast or you know somebody who you think would be a great guest, just reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm always keen to hear from you. This week, I'll be interviewing Rich Miles, an accountancy and finance recruiter from Birmingham who moved his two kids and wife to San Diego. Rich has over 20 years experience in recruitment and we discuss the professional and personal risks he made to make that move happen and ultimately how it changed his life for the better. Rich and his family are really living the Californian dream and in the following interview you will hear how he made it happen. I hope you enjoy. Richard Miles. How are you doing, sir? Welcome to the Recruiter Abroad podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, Rich, uh, I've given everybody a, a brief rundown on your background and, uh, and your story to date. Can you, uh, can you bring us right back to what got you into recruitment in the year of 1997? Oh, student debt, probably more than anything else. Um, it was, uh, I was coming out of university and... I'll be honest, I'd really graduate fairs, graduate schemes, none of it really. And I didn't really know what I was going to do when I went into university. So coming out of university, I probably knew any less. What did you um, study in uni? Um, politics and international relations for my sins. <laughs> uh, I, you know, what? I think it was one of those. And, and it's probably helped me out with this career in recruitment is I was never really any good at black or white math biology, anything that you just had to be right or wrong. Whereas you give me a gray area like politics where you could argue your point and find a reason to justify your point, then that was me hands down. So uh, <laughs> that might have been what led me to, uh, to ending up with a career like this where you just have to talk for a living. Yeah, well, storytelling is the key to all great recruiters, I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it is, you know, and, and liking the sound of your own voice never hurts either. Who are you talking to? I've got a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you, you, you graduate, you've loads of debt. You're in Birmingham, was that right? Yeah, no, that was it. And um, one of my um, friends, his, um, his brother, who, who also lived in Birmingham, he was going out with a, a girl at the time. And she now I forget what the, the company was. It's probably changed in, in a different incarnation nowadays. But 
it was one of the sort of the, the computer people type of businesses. Um, I forget perhaps which one. And okay. she got into that having come out of university and, you know, IT recruitment back then. I mean, I'm, you know, maybe you still make a lot of money in it nowadays, but they were earning some ridiculous amounts of money. And, you know, the, the barriers to entry weren't there having had a non-specialist degree. So, you know, went for a couple of interviews got offered the one with, uh, with Badenock and Clark and, uh, you know, sort of having graduated in June, I was starting with them in July of 97. And that's the type of place where they punch you in the face on your first day. It's real old school UK recruitment back then. Isn't that right? Oh, I mean, I mean, we were basically got the job. It was all sitting in the, the Birmingham office. There was only about 10 of us in the Birmingham office at the time. But you were sent down to London straight away for a, a week sort of induction, so to speak. And you were literally locked in a room sort of nine to five every single day, just being beaten over the head. How do you sell a pen? This is what you do. This is what you don't do. Yeah. So how, know, how, it, how, how do you sell a pen? <laughs> I still probably couldn't tell you nowadays. So everyone, everyone will quote you that line from Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I can't see you, so I can't take your pen away from you to, uh, for you to ask for it back, really. So, uh, so it's, it's 1997. Uh, I, I barely remember it. And I'm 35. <laughs> a lot Neither of our, do I. A lot of, a lot of our listeners will be, <laughs> will, will be in their early 20s thinking, thinking of moving abroad. What? What was what was it like working in recruitment then? What what type of tools were you using? And, and yeah, walk us through that. Well, I mean, based for starters, we didn't. I think toward the end, we might have had external email, or there was one system in the whole office that had an external email facility. Everything else was just internal email, so you could email the um, the guys in the London office or the guys in the Milton Keynes office, but as in broadcasting to the outer world, I think we had one system that basically did it. Um, all of the, the CVs were manually typed up by one administrator that we had. Um, you had to file all of your own mail shots. Um, advertising copy had to be written on a Monday in time for it to go in the local paper on a Wednesday. Um, and I suppose the biggest thing was with, with the restrictions on email, you had to fax all the CVs that you sent had to go via the external fax machine. Well, well, what's a fax machine? I'm only joking. (laughs) (laughs) But do you know what the scary thing is? What we used to do as well, I mean, there was a a business which, you know, again, maybe some people will or won't know. It changed um, its sort of face and name over the years. But we used to to sort of go head to head quite a lot with the old Harrison Willis group, um, which sort of subsequently became TMP. Um, and they were one of our biggest competitors in the, um, the interim market back then in Birmingham. And what we used to do, we knew their fax number because we'd had guys that had basically come over from them to work for us. So when a job came in and we knew that the company had probably given it to them as well, we would start faxing blank pieces of paper to their fax machine because it blocked it so that they <laughs> then had to wait for those to come through before they could send any out. Precious. <laughs> so, you, so you're in that. So you're in BNC, you're doing finance, uh, temp finance, was it? Yes, correct, yeah. And, uh, and you kind of did your basic apprenticeship there and then you moved on, is that right? Yeah, no, that, that was it. I mean, and I think, you know, look, I'll, I'll put my hand up to this as well. I think at the time, you know, it was, 
again, recruitment was in its relative infancy to a certain extent, you know, certainly maybe in the, the, the provinces, as people would call it, like Birmingham. Um, and yeah, I was, you start to earn some quite good money. And I was just out of university. I was a bit cocky. And I probably thought I was better than I was at the time. You know, I think I had my geographical remit was I had, I had three letters. I had R, S and T. And any company that started with any of those letters I got. Now, in Birmingham, I was quite lucky because we had seven Trents. So they sort of fell under my thing. So I, I was doing quite well for myself. But like a lot of, I suppose, young guys, you know, I got a bit carried away with it, got a bit too mouthy. Um, <laughs> and uh, my, my female boss at the time and I clashed a bit too many times. And of course, you think you're invincible. I can um, relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> until you get called into a meeting one day and you've seen it a million times yourself. And you said, did somebody just put my bags outside that main door? Oh, no. um, yeah, I'm not going to be going back in there this afternoon. So, uh, you know, it, it was all done very amicably at the time. And I suppose like a lot of these things, as you go through the career, did that teach me a good life lesson to not be uh, not be as cocky as I should be? It probably did. Um, and then, you know, I was fortunate at the time to uh, to get a call from the guys at ABPM, who were a sort of leading regional practice at the time, got on very well with uh, with Reg, the owner. And uh, it was on to the second chapter. And um, what the second chapter was 14 years. Is that right? No, well, I had I had the time at ABPM, which was after Badenock and Clark. Okay. Um, and so I was with those guys about 18 months or so. Um, and then it was um, the, well, as was at the time, Select Finance Group, which became um, SF Group. Yeah. That was when I joined them in, uh, in January of 2002. And how, how did that turn into 14 years? How, how do you keep yourself going every day d doing this job and, and dealing with the highs and lows? Did it get easier? Like, what, what, what was the journey there like? Oh, I mean, I think, and the one thing I'll always say about this, and in a, in a way, when I left, I was very, very sorry to leave that because, again, it's very cliched. But within that, it was a real us against the world. It was a business that hadn't been very long in its own sort of lifespan. And it was exciting. It was new. And it was all sort of us against the big bad world of your Michael Pages and everybody else. And we were taking them on. We were the young pretenders and... We had a very entrepreneurial owner at the time and yeah, and, and going, it was very exciting. It was very challenging because every win you got was great. Mm. And then you go through that and it gets more exciting. And then, of course, the, the one thing that everybody forgets that you're allowed to have in recruitment, of course, is the personal life. Because, you know, most of the time you don't have time for a personal life except for after work drinks on a Friday. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, the, uh, the wife came along and then it was in sort of 2007 that we had our, our first daughter. Um, and that's, of course, when, well, A, my wife gave up work, our first daughter came along and then the wheels came off the track in 2008. And we were like oh, one wow. salary down, one more mouth to feed and uh, recruitment only going in one direction. So that was, you know, there was no time to be sort of uh, throwing everything in the air then and, and sort of taking a chance elsewhere. But how did you, know, you hold on to your job? Well, I mean, I suppose I was relatively fortunate in, in, in a way because I was probably the, the second or third longest serving within the business at the time. Um, and we'd got quite a good 
under, we, we basically just brought it all back into the core. And unfortunately, some people, newer um, consultants, recruits, did lose their jobs. But having been one of the longest tenures, and unfortunately coming off the back of one of my best ever years in recruitment, which never hurts, yeah. um, it, it bought me a bit of time. But the, the big thing with our business, again, I suppose, we were, we were owned by one guy, so there weren't any shareholders calling the, the, the shots. He wasn't gaining that business. That was more like a lifestyle business for him because he had other sources of income. So to a certain degree, whilst it was you don't want the business to fall apart, there perhaps weren't the pressures to continually make profit that there might have been in other circumstances and other organizations. And throughout your, throughout your career there, did you act? actively pursue the the principal consultant route as opposed to trying to manage lots of people i mean and i suppose that was a, another interesting thing with that business i mean for a time i was i did become a manager within the the uh, the sort of the organization with the, the sort of the regional teams that we had there but you know it was the circumstances behind that were more sort of out out of a reaction to unfortunately somebody um, moving on from the the organisation, and it was kind of well, would you like to do this? It, I mean, management. It's one of those things that I, I would I wouldn't shy away from it, but did I actively seek it out like some people do? You know that the whole as you see all these job titles nowadays, it's consultant and it's senior consultant or it's principal. Um, you know, I think. It was more for me, and maybe this was born out of having gone through something like 2008, 2009. I never wanted to be in a position where I wasn't needed. I couldn't point to my billings. I couldn't point to my fee generation. Mm. And going too far down that management route is it, just always something I, I'd shirked away from because, you know, having had that experience of having the relative rug pulled out from under you, I always, always wanted to be in control of my own destiny. And I saw continually billing as a way to do that mm. and and did your the way you managed your day throughout the years did that change or were, are you fairly consistent are you a very regimented type person or i become more lazy i suppose is the yeah yeah <laughs> and i think because most people do right yeah the, the, and i think you know how how is it difficult to not become because you build up you, you start from a relative nothing maybe you're lucky maybe you inherit a good desk maybe you inherit a good geographical region but by default, the, the better I suppose you become via experience, the easier things come to you. So there isn't that necessity to meticulously plan the day. Now, the one thing, again, I, I will say that that was, you know, beyond compare, really, with, with SF Group, with the internal systems we had, where we had something that was effectively called the working day. And this thing, which sat on your desktop, basically mapped out candidates, clients, how you go about your marketing. So the internal system was there that you could utilize it as much as you wanted as a new consultant or as a more seasoned consultant, you could take the bits that you wanted, but you were continually reminded of what you needed to do. Yeah. I, 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 that's the biggest piece I would struggle with in recruitment is, is, is keeping it consistent every mm. week, you know, and that's why, you know, I, I almost have to develop the system where I'm, I'm recording a podcast one day or, or doing it another day. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm trying to just put as many different type things into my week to keep me, my creative juices flowing. It's a, and, and I, maybe that's, a, maybe that's a, a fault compared to like top, top recruiters like your boss. But I, well, I think that the, the thing is, you know, you, you, you're two types of people. And, and I've, 
again, I suppose it's almost coming back to the personal circumstance that you had, you know, and I was talking to, to Carl, you know, one of the directors here about it the other day, because he's just about to have his second daughter come along or, or, or son. Um, and we were just very much, we were talking about it. And I said, well, the thing is, things will come along in your life that will mean you will be wholeheartedly committed you know, for six months at your job, but then all of a sudden you're moving house or you have another child that comes along or, you know, maybe you're unfortunate and there's a death, you know, wh whatever it might be, there's always something that's going to influence and drive you mm. and give that focus or, or retain that focus or take that focus away from you. So if you can just keep a, a core line of what you need to do, then, you know, I suppose it, it, it's the typical recruitment consultant thing. And it's a real fault of a perm biller, I think, as well, because, you get your fees in, your pipeline looks very good. You take your foot off the gas because you think, oh, I'm all right. I can see my billings for the future. What happens? Three months after that, you've got nothing in your pipeline because you stop working. So, uh, I think, you know, that's, if nothing else, that's what always drives me, I suppose, as well, because I've just I've seen it and I've been guilty of it so many times of not trying to keep a focus there. Yeah, I, I wake up with fear every day. <laughs> And that fear is only getting worse and worse. Well, do you know, I always said to myself that I would not be doing this job when I was 40 because you, you think, you know, I'll have, I'll have found a proper job by this point. Surely I will have done. Surely I will have done. And then all of a sudden, you know what, you know, I'm sort of now 40, 43 and you think, God, when am I going to get a proper job? Yeah. Um, but, you know, then people say, oh, email comes along. That's going to take away things. Now, Indeed's there. That's going to take everything away. LinkedIn's going to take everything. You know, I hear all these advertisements about um what is it that we have here zip recruiter and how that's got some sort of ai built into it and, and that's, just... a lo that's a lot of shape that's it. yeah there are always things that you could worry about but the one thing that will never go away is you know having a direct relationship and just being able to relate to people you can't replicate that mm. and tell me what what do you think like the, the qualities are of really top performers that you've worked with? I mean, I think, I think one of the, the, the key things is, is it's just having that ability to, and that desire to want to build. And that, that, I think, is one of the strongest things. And, you know, and I think in some ways as well, it's that needing the money. You know, yeah. I, I, I've seen some, some really good people come along, but when they get there, can they survive on their base salary? They probably can. And, you know, maybe they're in a fortunate situation, their spouse has got a good job, whatever it may be. But I think if you take away that real, if I don't get that fee over the line or I don't do everything I can to get that fee over the line, that's going to directly impact me and my family or my situation or whether you want that deposit on a car or, you know, you don't have to have a family. But if you you need to have that drive, whether you want to be the top biller in the office because it's a pride thing and you're just that competitive or you want the money because you really want the money. You know, whatever it is, you have to have something that drives you in doing this job. There are, there are a lot less stressful jobs where you could earn the equivalent base salary mm. without all the heartache and pain that goes with it. So needy and greedy. <laughs> there you go. That's a catchphrase you could use. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm stealing that from a friend of mine, to be honest. Ah. I, I can't quote him, though. He's, he's too worried about his personal image. Um, <laughs> So, so you're, you're, you're obviously good at this, right? You've, been do, you, you're, you've, you've done 14 years in this company. It's worked out. You've survived some of the tough times of the recession. You've built your desk back up. 
you've had a kid. Did you have a second kid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So had, yeah, we, we had a second in two thousand and nine. Two thousand and nine. Okay, so you're you're getting your life back. It's a yeah. Like <laughs> think, things are good. What what makes you raise your hand and say, you know, maybe maybe I'll try America now. Do you know what? It's one of those things. And I mean, you know, as well as I do, the the whole Australia thing, which was huge when there was a a mass migration, it seemed like. And I've got good friends that that went over to Australia in and out of recruitment. Um, But and I had the opportunity to, to have a couple of interviews for that and to make that move. And for me personally, it just never appealed as much. Um, to to go to Oz. I mean, I visited it. I love the country. I love the people there. But that it always just seemed too far for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think with my wife as well. I mean, she she's very family orientated. Um, but we'd always both said. I mean, I I'd lived in America. Funnily enough, actually lived in San Diego um, prior to going to university. Um, my wife had lived in America. She lived in Virginia for for a period of time as well. And and when she, she, her old job, she used to be cabin crew for Virgin. So she was back and forth from America a lot. As a result, we holidayed there a lot. And I think when you and I very first spoke, and I almost said to you, look, I'd be interested, but it would only be America. And in the back of my mind, did I say that thinking that I didn't think it was possible? Because I'd always thought one thing America's got enough of is salespeople. They mm. don't need any more recruitment consultants. Why on earth would you need a recruitment consultant out there? Mm. Um, so because I thought it was impossible, I never actually properly pursued it. And maybe I threw it out there as something of, well, yeah, that'd be great. Of course I'd move. Um, but I think fundamentally, we, as you quite rightly say, for the rights or wrongs of it, we were, everything was sorted. I was in a good place with the, the, the business. Um, we just had our loft converted at our house. We just remortgaged. Everything was settled. And I think it's like everything in life, really. If something appears when you're not expecting it to appear, mm. and then there's, you're not running away from anything because things were probably as good as they were going to get or had been for a while at home. Mm. My wife's job was sorted. She'd gone back to, to the university. She'd qualified. She'd got into teaching. She was getting promotions at work. The kids were settled. We were lived in a good geographical striking distance for a good secondary school for them. There was no reason to come here, but that was probably the best reason to come here. Mm. And it's interesting you say that about Australia. You, you you would probably have more options in Australia than America, but there's more boutiques that would hire. Mm. Um, there's not too many employers that that would hire hire somebody with as much experience as you in America at the, at this moment. So, I think I think that 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 that's an interesting point, isn't it? How how recruitment companies they tend to focus heavily on people with less than five years experience. And they do. And I think, you know, I, I think you and I were sort of going back a bit and, bit and forth on it on, on LinkedIn the other day when I saw a thread on there about it. And, it. and you always have to be quite careful when you throw something out there on LinkedIn. You're never sure who you're going to insult or who's going to take it the wrong way. But well, I, I think, don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, there, there is, you know, but why? And I'm the oldest guy in our office here by quite some way. I'm older than the guys that own the business. You know, I'm older than the directors. And there is that kind of conception that it's a young person's game. And I suppose it almost goes back to, to what I said earlier. In many ways, 
unless you're really going to go and own your own recruitment business to a certain extent, or you're going down the management or the director route and you're almost becoming that business development role, people generally don't continue to run desks as, you know, if you can speak to having had 20 years within a, a profession to a certain extent, it, it just doesn't happen. And I think I sit there and I think, well, look, I don't want to be one of the directors at the moment. I don't want to run the office. What I want to do is I still want to bill because I see that as my greatest potential to earn money. And it's what got me to the table in the first place. It's why you're interested in me. So why wouldn't you want somebody with that amount of experience come in and billing it? It doesn't mean I'm any less hungry. And in, in a way, <laughs> am I going to be more committed than somebody that is like in their mid twenties, that's maybe had a couple of years, really good success. That isn't to say that they're not as motivated as me, but I'm probably even more motivated than them because I've got all of these commitments that I have to honor and I've got to live up to. But I, I get that a lot of people will, will see it, you know, and, 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 and there's an aversion to it because they don't get that motivation sometimes. So Rich, you're, you're thinking of moving to America. What are all the things that you're taking into consideration? Oh, how am I going to tell my mum was probably the biggest one. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to steal her grandkids away from her. But uh, fortunately, my brother helped me out there because he, he, he had a little boy of his own. So that was that, that I knew that would soften the blow a bit. But I think I just and, and I've said this to quite a few people when I, when I was looking at it and we went back and forth and. We're not going to go literally for about because I was talking on and off to, to, to John and Carl here for and well, as, as you know, you know, we I think I started talking in like the March and then we finally, you know, and, and it took a long time to go. And I think we just every day I'd wake up and say, shall we, shan't we, shall we, shan't we? And you know, and I just got to the point where I thought if I sit there in my 60s and you just you didn't do it, then you'd always regret it. And for the rights or wrongs of it, I've always one of these pe been one of these people that jump first and then look for a soft place to land on the way down. Now, I think when you've got kids and a wife, you know, it's not just my life that we're playing with. And I think Kate and I had said b before my wife that if it was just the two of us, I wouldn't have needed a second thought. We'd have just done it. But when you, you, you're looking at the kids and you're looking at everything else that's involved and the parents, grandparents are all getting old, you know, it, yeah. it, you, you can't just make a selfish decision. But then I think the real clinch point was, so, you know, I, I sat down with my dad and, and, and I told him before I told my mum, and she does know this now retrospectively, but <laughs> I just kind of, uh, I said to him, what should I do? And he said, well, look, our job is to bring you up for you to be able to make the best decisions and for us to wish you all the very best. If you decide you do this, we'll back you. If you don't want to go, we'll, you know, we'll be, you know, just as happy that you're staying, but you've got to do what you want to do. What a real selfless man, hey? Well, <laughs> he is, um, except when it comes to giving his uh, son's <laughs> pocket money back in the day. But that's another point. But uh, I think, you know, it just, we'd always regretted it. And then, I mean, again, it's a, it's a bit naff and it's a bit cliched, but we were watching a movie the other day, the, the other night, Kate and I, and it was based in Hollywood and you kind of seen like the Hollywood Hills and everything else like that and said, if we were watching this movie back in England now thinking that could have been us going up there this yeah. weekend, you know, you, you'd be, I mean, what's the worst that can happen? You come, you have a great time, you go back home again if it doesn't work. But 
I think the thing that, that I suppose, aside from that, we did know that bringing the girls here, you kind of, again, it makes you make it work because they were getting to that point where they were about a year away from going up to secondary school. So they were still young enough to see it as a big adventure and be excited about it. But if we left it and we, we said this, if this had only come along another year, two years down the line, we probably wouldn't have done it because obviously they then start the ed- whole education piece becomes a bit more serious. Yeah, like my wife's pregnant uh, and she's due in July. We have a, we have a 14 month old boy. We're, we're in the process of moving into a house we just bought and it's mm. three minutes down the road. And you don't <laughs> own a lot of stuff, but it's been a nightmare. It, it's yeah. the, it, what was the process like moving your entire family to San Diego from Birmingham? And like, wh- how, did, how did you go about that? What did, what did you have to consider? How did you find out that information? Oh, I mean, now, now that was one, of course, you, you, you say yes. And in your head, you think, right, OK, now we've actually got to sort things out. And I mean, I've still got one of my moleskin notebook books that I had. And it's got everything from, you know, the shipping companies, the schools, car loans, banks. I mean, there is this. It's all the little things that I think you forget about. And mm. and and that was one of the, the biggest challenges. Now, again, I think. Yeah, a couple of the guys in our office have done it. And, you know, one of the, the, the guys here, he, he literally turned up and he had a suitcase and a backpack. And I'm sort of <laughs> like just staring there in wonderment, thinking, how can you do that? Um, but then I suppose, you know, I had, you know, X amount of years of stuff and sofas and, you know, beds. And I've got all this stuff. So because we thought if we were going to commit, we wanted to commit whole heart, you know, we, we had to go all in. So we took the decision to sell the house at home. I mean, again, wow. at the time, it was quite heartbreaking to a certain extent because we'd just been living in it you know, and we'd got the, the loft done. It was looking beautiful and we were enjoying it. And then it was right. We've got to take everything out. But we didn't want to just stick it on a, a, a sort of a, a rental and then have everybody have our own stuff and everything. So, you know, then you start to look at shipping containers and costs and then you're like, how much? Um, but then, and I was like, right, but if we, if we sold it here, we're not going to get what we want. Then we've got to rebuy it over there and there'd be so much. So it's like, right, let's just get one of those big containers that you always see sitting on the other side. And you think, I wonder what's in those. Um, and just like, just get it done. And, but I think the whole process, and that's why we actually, from start to finish, you know, it took a while for us to actually physically be here. Um, and again, I ended up coming for two months prior to my wife and girls coming out because that gave me the opportunity to get here and everything else. But have a few beers and enjoy yourself. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, you know what? And it's, it's a bit like everything. It can be as complicated or as easy as you make it. Was it easy? No. Did we have to look into a lot of things? Yes. Have I now been able to, to then make it easier for a lot of these other guys to come over and do it? I mean, like for example, I passed my US driving license before John did, you know, the owner. Now, John's been here for like 16, 17 months, but it took me coming here. And I suppose just because I am that way, it's like, what do you do, Rich? What do you do? I was like, right, John, you go here, you do this, you do this, you do that. <laughs> oh, OK, right. I'll do that now. You um, sound like his mom. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but it is a bit like that. And he's like, how do you do that? Where do you get that from? So, um, and the one thing I will say, and I was always a bit, you, you can go onto these forums and you can go onto the, I actually didn't find many of those very useful. Um, I think you almost just have to do it yourself and, you know, and you get, oh, I don't want to phone anybody in America because it's going to cost me and everything. I just got on and I did that. And I think if you, you know, and then I also got found this great company who were able to facilitate me getting credit here in the U- UK because I did it whilst I was in the, um, in the US, rather, because I did it while I was in the UK. So they take my credit rating from the UK. It cost, I think, about £200 or something. But then it meant that all of that was taken care of. So, I mean, a bit of, uh, you know, again, preparation is key. And in this case, and, and probably having a wife kicking your backside every five minutes saying, have you done this? Have you done that? Then that certainly helps as well. Wow. That's a lot of information packed in, into that. And just, just jumping a wee bit more into it, mm. did, did the, is it private school for the girls or did you find a good public school or how, how, how has that gone? Yeah, I mean, and again, you see when we were looking on, online at these things, there are a lot of these international schools, but touch wood, if this is something for the long term for us, which, you know, at the moment we very much believe it is, and we were going to live in a community. I wanted my girls to go to that school. I mean, I had a, you know, one of my best friends, he actually lived over in Switzerland for a while and they went to an international school. I mean, he, he, he like, kind of knew. language stuff there involved. It, it, exactly. Um, you know, but I think here I really wanted, and part of the whole, part of this whole move was for the kids as much as anything else. A, I knew that if I was sitting down with them at the age of, when they're in their 18 and they were like, you mean we could have gone and lived in San Diego, but you kept us in Birmingham. So <laughs> that, that wasn't a conversation show, I ever show, wanted show to have. to Birmingham. Them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think, you know, A, I owed it to them, but then I also owed it to them to be able to give them the best opportunity to make friends. Now, I mean, we virtually have somebody from their school knocking on our door every evening for them to go out and play. And if I was driving them down to a a school downtown, to an international school where they're getting to know other British kids or anything like that, would they have that? No. Probably not, you know. And it's all, I suppose, comes down to that immersing yourself in the environment and actually going wholeheartedly into it. So I've met... Apart from the guys that work here, I only really know one other British guy. And I met him by mistake almost because he was at a sort of a house party in the local neighborhood. And he was a friend of a friend. You know, all the other friends that we've made are American. All of the, the girls' friends, they're all uh, local. And, and I think and that's really helped our integration into the community here. And the school was a real linchpin of that. Yeah. And so... It, it really does sound like the Californian dream. Are, are, are your n- neighbours' gardens having barbecues and doing that at the weekend and, and, and all of that as well? Is... Oh, oh it, yeah, well, it was um, it just obviously been Memorial Day weekend and we had um, Carl, one of the directors here, he's just moved into our neighbourhood actually. So he came over with his, his wife and their little girl. We had our neighbours came round. We started barbecuing at theirs and then we migrated round to ours because I had more beers in my fridge, so we just all kind of upped and moved around to ours. Their dog came over, some other random dog came over, and then the owner of that dog came round, and he had a drink with us as well. So it, it does, it is all, again, very cliched, but genuinely, the people here 
can't do enough for you. And I think a lot of that is, is San Diego and California are quite unique to a certain extent. Cause I think a lot of people are transplants here themselves. Yeah. It's very rare that you meet a native San Diegan. I mean, we've actually got one Jessica in our office. She, she sort of grew up here, but that aside, and certainly the parents um, at the school who we've met, they either came from Colorado or they've come from the East Coast. And they, so everybody's used to being that new person. And because they're used to being that new person, they reach out to you so much more and you get invited to so much more. And, and you do genuinely find that people are very open. And of course, one of the great things is the weather. You know, mm. you can always be outside. So people aren't running out of your front door, into the car, drive to work, running into work and vice versa on the way back home. Because you are generally outside a lot of the time, it's difficult to not bump into people. And because the sun's shining the majority of the time, people are generally a lot happier as well. So they're more cordial when you actually have a conversation with them. I'm going to have this, uh, this podcast on loop for Charlotte when, when I get back. Uh, <laughs> San Diego, can we move? Oh. Um, let, let me bring you back to the business stuff. Mm. I heard a rumor it's worked out for you. So far, so good. So, <laughs> it, I mean... It is, I mean, this, this, and I said, one of the things I said to John, and it, it, it rang really true, is that I would have been interested in this business, even if they were in England. Now, the fact that this business is in California and the fact that it's in San Diego is like the icing on the cherry on the icing, however you'd want to pay, you know, it's, I've always enjoyed, and it goes back to the business I spent 14 years with, I like being in the little guy environment where you're up against somebody, you're not a Robert Half, you're not a Robert Walters, you're not a Michael Page. You're always going up against these guys and you're trying to take a piece of their pie. So you're always pushing to get something more. And what Ed over in Australia and what John subsequently has been able to build here in, in support of like Carl and the rest of the team here, is that real, you care about what the other people do, you know, and something I've had to learn here because I've never had this before is this whole split thing where you generate a job, you have 25% of this or you have 50% of this candidate. And that was always a bit alien to me. And I, I did, I worried about it a bit because I thought, well, does that mean people are trying to like keep candidates or nobody's trying to share any information with you? But I mean, nothing could be further from the truth with these guys. And, you know, it's all, it's all collaborative because we're all here for a reason and everybody has got each other's backs. And, and that's genuinely, you do feel like if you're out of the office, somebody wouldn't not put your candidate forward if they were the best candidate for the role. And that, is, you know, as we all know, in, in recruitment can be quite a unique thing. And did you have to change anything about your style of recruitment? Or did it, was it just the exact same? And that, that's one of the things that I've worried about a lot. You know, you go from... 20 years that you've built a market and you know everything and everyone and you can cite this example or you can cite this person to knowing nothing and nobody. Um, but that was part of the challenge. And then you look at it and say, am I going to have to do things differently? Are people going to literally roll out the red carpet because you've got a British accent and they think you're landed gentry? Um, or are they just going to think you're obnoxious and they don't want anything to do with you? Um, and it's probably somewhere in the middle. You know, people are interested to talk to you because... A, they're interested about why you did this. 
And then they're interested in your business because your business is quite new and, and all they perhaps know is, is Robert Half or something. But I haven't fundamentally had to change what I do because, you know, it, it, people are people and you, you adapt to certain people and you can always find a common ground to, to have a conversation with somebody about. Um, and again, I think a big part of that is, is maybe being a bit older, which comes back to that whole idea of why would you not? hire a more seasoned consultant because they've got more life scars you know they've got kids or they've got mortgages or they've got all these other things that are are so commonplace with so many of the clients that you're dealing with and people buy people so if you can get people to to like you and you can find that common ground then why can't you then have a meaningful conversation with you and are they going to put their trust in somebody that's had six weeks recruitment experience who's inherited a desk or are they going to trust somebody that's been doing it 15, 20 years who, who maybe knows what they're talking about? Um, so I didn't really have to alter too much. I had to get used to the dress code because, you know, having been, even though we were quite casual where I was previously, it's very casual in California, um, you know, and especially so on a Friday. Um, and, and there is, and people have told me, the clients who I've met who've come over from the East Coast, from Boston, they've just said how, laid back the, the the Californian and particularly the Southern Californian markets are in comparison. The one thing that is and has been a bit of an eye opener here is that people perhaps aren't as always open to having a meeting when it's a meeting for a meeting's sake, as in let's just have a catch up for a coffee. Um, they're, they're interested initially because they, you've got something a bit different to, to say, but Maybe that's just more indicative mm. of the market in, in, in general at the moment because it's job rich and candidate poor. People don't feel they need to be meeting you as much at the moment. Mm. That's, an, that's an interesting one. I think, I think America, and I know that it isn't the way that your business works as such, but a lot of American clients that I deal with are, are more product driven. Mm. So it's more about getting that resume maybe rather than getting to know the recruiter itself. So... Whereas in Australia, especially where, where the boys would have formed, it's coffees all the time. You know, it's, a, it's, it's the biggest difference is just the speed of the two markets. And the UK might be somewhere in between. I, I think you're right. And, and, and Callum, the other guy who, who works here, who, who came over, I mean, he's a British guy initially, but he came over from Australia. And, and he said that was one of the marked differences. You know, and he, he was doing a sort of business development role out there. He said, no, I, I could fill up my entire week with coffees and catch-ups and, you know, you'd almost be turning meetings down. Whereas he's come here and, as you said, it's very well, if you've got something to talk to me about, I'd love Mm -hmm. to sit down and talk to me or or show me what you've got, so to speak, especially in the the unique market space that they're offering in that IT um, market that, you know, and again, you know, if I've got a candidate that's got that specific experience, you've got to pick up the phone and you've got to share that. And it is, that's why the market is at the moment. It's about taking something meaningful to market and then having the ability to tell the story behind it because you're only as good as your product. And if you haven't got the product they're looking for, then they're going to go looking for it elsewhere. Final question, Rich. Mm. What advice would you give anybody who's thinking of making the move to the U.S.? The only, I mean, there is no reason on this planet to not do it at the moment. I mean, I think every, everybody, if you, I don't know, took a general cross-section of society of the UK recruiters and you said, which two markets would you like to go and work in? 
you could choose Southern California, you can have New York, or you can have Australia, just because of that whole idyllic image of Southern California, I would bet you, you would probably get a larger percentage saying Southern California. Now, and as a younger recruiter, shall we say, now is the time to do it because you can come here, you can rent somewhere. The rents are comparable to, to from what the guys here have told me of somewhere like in, 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 the, in the South or in London. So there has never been a better opportunity to be able to get yourself here and make a mark and then build a life here. Um, the only bit of advice I would ever give anybody um, who's potentially looking at coming here with a family is just make sure that you do your sums because you know, it, it would be a miss of me to say anything different, but you know, the housing market here is crazy at the moment. And you know, it's one of the things that perhaps we underestimated a bit, but would I change anything that we would have done? Not in a heartbeat because the, my girls and subsequently my wife, and therefore if they're happy, I'm happy. Um, you know, the lifestyle and the opportunities that they have here are limitless beyond anything that, that, that they would have in the UK. And, you know, to that end alone, how could I ever deny them that opportunity? So if you are in any doubt about at the very least exploring it, I would say explore it. And if you have that opportunity, what's the worst that could happen? Doesn't work out, you go home. But I would like to, to sort of suggest that it would work out. Richard Miles, thank you so much. Thank you very much, mate. Absolute pleasure. Take care. Talk soon. All the best. Bye. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. Rich Miles, uh, what a gentleman and a great guest. I, I found on a personal level, his, uh, his story was really inspiring. We, we're in the process of having our second child at the moment and buying a house and doing all that type of stuff. And, and lots of people say, you know, that's you, you're settled down now, you can't move. I think Rich's story really proves that you can move and you can make these these things happen. You just have to take a bit of a gamble and and back yourself. And uh, and San Diego sounds like the place to do it. You know, it's family orientated. The sun shines. The market's great, and uh, and it's really worked out for Rich and his family. So I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. And yeah, till next week, uh, we will be back on with another great guest, and I think we'll be speaking about America again. podcast you just heard was recorded with anchor if you want to make your own download the android or ios app completely free from anchor.fm slash podcast that's anchor.fm slash podcast